This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at some of the colonial legacies and discourses around girls' education. Development actors configure girls as being trapped in these vicious cycles of intergenerational poverty, sexual violence, and oppressed by quote-unquote cultural barriers, backwards cultural barriers or perspectives. Investment in girls' education then is offered as a panacea that'll alleviate poverty, prevent terrorism, and curb gender-based violence. And girls end up becoming seen as these exceptional subjects of development if they're properly invested in. With me are Chris Kirch-Gassler and Karishma Desai. They've recently published an article entitled Girls in Crisis, Colonial Residues of Domesticity in Transnational School Reforms, which was published in the Comparative Education Review. You can also link to neo-Lamarckian thesis of evolution. Of course, we look at Lamarck today and say, what was that about? And kind of throw up our hands and say, that was pseudoscience. There's a different developmental justification given today that we discuss briefly in the article that's now framing these sort of justifications for the this, this now gendered difference in terms of anticipation and its probabilities. So now it's a correlational logic. Chris Kirchgassler is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Karishma Desai is an assistant professor at Rutgers Graduate School of Education. Chris Kirchgassler and Karishma Desai, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. So it's quite popular today in education development to talk about a girl's crisis in education. What does that actually mean? So over the last several decades within international development, we see racialized girls circulating as this vector of development, facing the greatest crises, yet bearing this immense potential for change. Um, Development actors configure girls as being trapped in these vicious cycles of intergenerational poverty, sexual violence, and oppressed by quote-unquote cultural barriers, backwards cultural barriers or perspectives. Investment in girls' education then is offered as a panacea that'll alleviate poverty, prevent terrorism, and curb gender-based violence. And girls end up becoming seen as these exceptional subjects of development if they're properly invested in. So we see this correlation between investment in girls' ed and economic growth proliferated by the 1990s World Bank research that illustrated how improved access and enrollment of girls in formal schooling led to increased GDP per capita, decreased infant mortality, and increased life expectancies. The girl then becomes a distinct demographic category and target for intervention at the fourth UN Women's Conference in Beijing in 1995. And in 2005, the UN launches a governing body situated under UNICEF, the United Nations Girls' Education Initiative, Um, which then, so then this crisis is popularized several years later by the Nike Foundation's launch of Girl Effect in in 2008 and consolidated further in 2015 with the U.S. government's Let Girls Learn initiative. So over time, you have these institutional bodies creating the girl as this distinct demographic category. um, And then as we see as bridge, a range of developmental actors, corporations, UN agencies, INGOs, and local feminist organizations deploying this girl crisis discourse. And the girl is like also the panacea to so much of you know social ills that we might see. Right. So she's seen as being in crisis, but also bearing and pregnant with potential that just needs to be untapped. 
It really, it's it's quite fascinating. And so you you brought up Bridge, and you you write about it in your article. So Bridge International Academies is obviously this you know chain of low fee private schools in different countries, and there's quite a lot of controversy around Bridge. And and this podcast has actually talked a little bit about um, some of those controversies. But let's sort of put that aside for a moment and actually just think about you know how does Bridge International, as you know, a provider of low low fee private schools, support the education of girls? Like, how does it see itself supporting girls' education? How does it see itself sort of helping overcome this, this quote-unquote, girls' crisis in education? Yeah, so I, I'll just say at the outset that I, I've i listened to those episodes, Will, and I actually know the the people that you, you interviewed because they, in one case, um, I think Curtis Reap was in Uganda the same time I was in Kenya, and we were corresponding and Angelo uh, was uh, visiting Kenya. Uh, I actually met him and showed him around some of the uh, schools I was uh, working in. Uh, and so I was I was immersed in that controversy around the issues of privatization that, that Bridge was seen as sort of spearheading, right, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and at the same time, as you're pointing out, though, this is the, what we're talking about here is sort of a, a positioning angle that Bridge is taking that's, that's, I think, in fact, related to that perception of being a, a sort of a profiteer mm. and therefore, you know, having sort of naked capitalism behind its its ethos. And in in everything Karishma is just saying about the, the girl crisis that's seen at the level of research policy and reform, Bridges is riffing on that and is able to say, we're not simply interlopers, we are a social enterprise. And we're not, they'll talk about it in terms of something they'll call the du- the double bottom line which is that, yes, we have a responsibility to make a profit. We actually invest those profits back into expanding the enterprise. And the enterprise is fundamentally a social good because we're going to help meet developmental bench, uh, de- developmental benchmarks, um, one of which is now improving girls' outcomes through education. Uh, and so the focus on girls' education helps bridge align with other development organizations, right? It now takes it out of the sphere of just profiteering and puts it in this space of serving a, a helpful political or um, developmental end, right, in terms of aligning it with, you know, SDG goals and things like that. It wants to be understood as a development organization first and as a profit-making enterprise second. So forwarding its efforts to reach and empower to empower the girl is really important to that end. Uh, I think there's also an implicit messaging in how they position themselves as champions of the girl in relation to how they, they will make implicit contrast with the public schools that they are in effect competing against, where they will depict the girl in their traditional school setting as in different ways being oppressed, right? That the, that the nation state is failing to uphold these universal uh, uh, human rights in, in some way. And so they are unlike, they're positioning themselves as unlike those native Kenyan institutions. They are socially, politically conscious and this is, in fact, this leads us into the, the historicizing uh, of, of that narrative as itself a colonial trope um, that we can bring back to earlier colonial reform efforts. So let's let's do that. I mean, like, so how do the discourses of bridge that you, you, you have witnessed sort of firsthand in Kenya, how does it reflect some of these past discourses, these past colonial discourses? Well, so we can go back to the 1920s, um, which is where I, in my own dissertation research, I had done uh, a sort of historicizing of development discourses 
related to education in Kenya. And uh, it was through that research that I came into uh, contact with the Gene School. The Gene School was originally um, a U.S. philanthropic reform that was targeting rural black communities in the Jim Crow South. And but then became was associated with philanthropic and missionary networks uh, that were transnational in scope. And so uh, this and, and there's a whole story of how that happened. But the short of it is that this got basically this model of thinking about school reforms was brought into a number of British uh, sub-Saharan uh, African colonies. And uh, the, in that model of schooling, the gene school had at its found as one of its foundations this idea of development, but development as including proper sexual differentiation. And what we explore in the paper is this idea that men and women had to sort of graduate to proper roles in who was going to occupy the public sphere and who was going to occupy the private sphere. Women were understood as uh, in this thesis of domesticity that we explore in the paper as needing to tend to the family, that they were their fundamental responsibility was to child rearing and homemaking. And so this became um, one of the ways in which education was enrolled as a theory of development, because part of the effort was to understand that women were intimately related to goals of development and they had a special role in that development and that that role had to be um, inculcated through uh, a, a distinct form of education, uh, a, a distinct set of responsibilities that were going to, that was going to transform the the colony, which was obviously like de depicted in these in this backward state, um, as being able to sort of uplift itself. Right, that this was uh, essentially uh, displacing the responsibility for development onto those who are to be quote unquote developed. And so, how do the, how do some of those discourses of domesticity, you know, child rearing? How do they then fit into Bridge International today, in a sense? Yeah, I mean, well, because I mean, part of part of what we want to highlight, I guess, I mean, we can kind of pick back up with the Jeans School, right? Because so similar to the way in which Bridge wasn't necessarily interested in girls' education initially, um, and it becomes this sort of girls are sort of sexy, they become this innocent project, right? So they're associated with these also these these tropes of these ideas of humanitarianism in a way that becomes really important for Bridge to become seen as legitimate, right? So that also is happening um, in the Gene School and during, during sort of colonial times, thinking about saving women and girls ends up being really important as a part of the colonial project, right? And so um, in terms of the Gene School specifically, girls weren't initially at the forefront of of the schooling intervention, but as thinking about sort of these model homes, right? So hygiene and um, proper child rearing become some of the ways and, and, and Jean's wives, so the teacher's wives end up being the model educators for village, village women. Um, and it's through this in very sort of embodied pedagogy of domesticity that the, the wives are learning, learning their proper sex roles, right? right. And so part of our thesis around the civilizing thesis and sexual differentiation as being very clearly tied to racial differentiation or these two things dovetailing, um, this differentiation of really clearly understanding your role as, as a sexed body 
as needing as require a requirement for civilizational progress is what we are kind of seeing in in our analysis of genes and women's education within the gene school model. Uh, I just wanted to add to Karishma's um, answer there that this all of this is also predicated on a scientific discourse. This isn't just like, it's, it's, it's not just like, Oh, it's an ideology, um, which I think sometimes it's often treated as in um, the historiography There there's a whole evolutionary thesis about how civilization is going to reach its sort of ultimate state that is derived from what is sort of been forgotten today as we, we think of evolution when, when it's discussed as primarily genetic and hereditarian, but a lot of the social theories of the early 20th century were neo-Lamarckian in orientation. And the, the key difference there is that it's actually through um, the, what, what uh, Karishma was explaining as this sort of embodied transformation, these like changes of sensitivity and habits and sensibilities that you will, that, that racial progress is affected. So then pedagogy becomes really, really key as a site for intervening in those who are racialized and made developmentally backwards through these discourses. And so I just wanted to add that like sort of under undergirding idea behind the, the sort of scientific justification for these interventions. And so what, what ended up changing in the Jeans' school where the focus ended up being on girls and women? Did it used to, was it, what it was focused on other parts of, you know, schooling or had different sort of justifications? And then I think, Krishman, is that right? You said it, it sort of shifted to a focus on girls. Is that? I don't think that we're saying that there's a shift, right? I think that we're attending to hmm. the, the, what is focused on when teaching women and girls, right? The specific, hmm. so there, there's not necessarily a focus, but there we're attending to the pedagogical um, dimension of of teaching domesticity in this form. Right. And so in the genes of school, it's always been like that, you're saying. When teaching girls and women, that, that discourse of domesticity has always been there, more or less. Yeah, the sexual differentiation and learning your proper role, right, is right. a part of a larger educational project mm. um, that's then enacted within the gene school, I think is sort of what we're highlighting. Right. Yeah. And, and one key distinction between genes and later reforms uh, is, and I think Karishma alluded to this in the beginning, is that the turn to the girl isn't until relatively recent um, that you see that. In the gene school, they're talking about men and their wives. That's how they distinguish it, sex. And they talk about it as sex, not gender. Obviously, it's the 1920s. Right. Um, yeah. and, <laughs> and But it's already assumed like what a, wo a woman is a wife, right? I mean, you already have this idea that like there is a proper heterosexual relationship that is the funda like the fundament of civilization. And then it's simply about learning how to embody the ideal forms of what it means to be a wife, what it means to be the husband. The husband is, as I was saying earlier, is this outward face of the reform. He's the one who's going into the schools to fit to. So the whole reform was devised to train missionary educated men and their wives at a centralized location in the capital, Nairobi, and then send those couples back oftentimes to where they had grown up. But now after having had two years of teacher education or domestic education. And that when the, the couple would arrive, it was a bit like the Peace Corps, to be honest with you. When they would come back to their village, they would build a house 
in the town that was built according to mathematical sort of uh, notions of proper apportioning of the, the, the actual household so that you'd have, but also with the idea that the house would be itself a, a classroom of sorts. Everything would be a, a little larger so that people could like line the walls and see how the kitchen is organized, how the living room is set up, what the bedroom looks like. And even just to have this, these distinct spaces within the house was itself like a, a model of development. And that was the wife's responsibility to both keep this proper house and home and then demonstrate it to radiate change in the community was how it was like communicated. While the man, the husband was going into the schools, observing the teachers and giving them like on the job training, like in-service training. And that was basically, and then they would report for like regular in-service trainings themselves, but basically would be based, they would be based in that town for, you know, the indefinite future. And it was this idea that our development efforts are too top down. We need to find a bottom up strategy that's seen as legitimate, that's seen as they're of the people, they're, they're like us, but they're living this like better life. And oh, also this whole thing was about keeping in, in Kenya specifically, there was a great fear that there was a uh, urban migration that was going to cause like there, there was fears of crime and, and the, whatever, you know, like that, that people were going to come to the town and not find work. And then there'd be pauperism, you know, it's classic, like Victorian class <laughs> fears that were projected onto um, the, the quote native population. And so part of the reform was, Let's make the village a desirable place to stay. Also, because we need a labor surplus, we, the whites, right? We need a a, a, a labor surplus to work on the plantations, basically, like the, the flat, you know, that Kenya was a settler colony. So you had these massive farming operations that were being developed and they needed cheap labor nearby on the native reserves. And that's where all of these reforms were uh, taking place. It was to keep people on the native reserves. And so the Jean School was built, it was a piece of that larger colonial infrastructure. That's what ended up being really interesting for us, right? This model demonstration home and to link this. So it's not that it was, they're going to focus on girls' education, as I noted earlier, but and then also sort of historically, girls weren't educated in formal school spaces at this time, but rather it becomes a site of Victoria training around Victorian domesticity, right? Which is this form of domesticity, which is traveling with these educational reforms. Um, and so that, that and, and seeing how, and, and yeah, this idea of it being a site where, where that form of sexual differentiation and learning your proper sexed role ends up radiating, as Chris kind of mentioned with the, that sort of the language we were seeing in the, in the reports that we were looking at. It's quite interesting how a lot of that, those ideas, you know, the community engagement and all of these ideas are so similar to what you hear in development discourse today. But before we, we connect this all back to today, you know, you also bring up this anti-colonial uprising called the Mau Mau Uprising in, in Kenya that happened a few decades after the, the Genius School was sort of established. Can you talk a little bit about this uprising? But then the more important part that you focus in on is sort of the educational programs that were implemented in the prison camps for those who were, you know, supposedly, you know, anti-colonial uprising. So, you know, can you tell us a little bit about the Mau Mau uprising and, and what some of these programs sort of taught in terms of domesticity and how it's connected to this genus school and some of the, the ideas that you saw there? Yes, the Mau Mau uprising 
is a crucial event in both the end of colonial empire in Kenya and also the creation the, the creation of the the post-colonial independent Kenyan Republic. And it is still in historiography a very contentious event in terms of trying to under, apprehend fully what what it was. And I, I in fact don't think it's really possible to apprehend fully what any historical event was. And yet it's it's been such a rich site for reappraisal and and really like fundamental reevaluation. So I can't really give you a, a very satisfactory synopsis, except to say that between 1954 and 1960, the British uh, illegally detained about between somewhere between 80 to 120,000 Kenyans in prison camps and subjected approximately 1 million to a program that was called villagization. And that's where we'll talk. That's where I can talk more about what you were asking in terms of the educational programs. The important thing to understand about Mau Mau uh, is that it was it wasn't Kenyan wide. It was primarily located in the Mount Kenya area and primarily with um, ethnicities that were Kikuyu or Kikuyu related uh, family of uh, language of speakers. And it was related back to what we were just talking about with genes with this idea that land had been alienated from them at the turn of the 20th century. And there were there had been long standing decades now claims for the repatriation of that land formulated in different ways at different times um, and with different ends in mind, uh, but that had gone continually unheard or unresponded to by the the, uh, colonial powers. And so this uprising uh, began, at least in part, as a response to that. So there was this huge uh, and really draconian reaction by the, uh, the British in trying to tamp down the revolution. And also this deep fear of we don't we the British don't even understand the nature of this revolution or what's going on. And so better if we just cordon off every <laughs> every potentially dangerous element uh, that could be uh, seen as helping to foment this um, uprising. And and and, you know, even better if we can tap it off, tamp it down before it even starts. And that's where education then becomes really important and where the gene school sort of magically makes its return um, because the Gene School was one of the few educational reforms that was happening under colonial sort of auspices within the native reserves already. And so you see literally the, the former Gene's principal appointed the, the chief of community development. Uh, and community development in this case is basically the person responsible for, edu- well, for an, a lot of different kinds of programming for what they call rehabilitation. Um, and there's different forms of rehabilitation. There's that that which uh, occurs in the prison camps and that which occurs in the uh, the villages. But there, it's all undergirded by the idea that there's like degrees to which one can demonstrate their allegiance to Mau Mau. And the fear was that once one pledged allegiance to Mau Mau or oaths, as the term was called, that they would be they wouldn't be recoverable. They would be sort of dedicated to the cause. And so there was this whole sort of pathopsychology that was put on to Kenyans, uh, those who were seen as like Mau Mau sympathetic, that it was all stemming from, according to these ethnopsychiatrists, which is a racist pseudoscience of that studied, quote, the African mind, that this was all a cause because of uh, the failure, the breakdown of the family unit that was brought upon by colonialism itself. And so the solution was, oh, the, the modernization and capitalism has corrupted um 
the the, the state of, of traditional relationships in uh, the native reserves. And what we, the colonizers, need to do is enter into the picture and try to break these these uh, kinship ties that are seen as dangerous. And and that would begin essentially with um, doing what Gene School had been doing. All the proposed reforms were, we need to up the ante on domesticity. We need more domesticity. Women in particular are the glue of this movement. That's what was being posited by the, the social scientists. So we need to change the women's attitudes and behaviors and sensibilities, getting them to understand their fundamental role as homemakers. And, and if, if we could do that, then the, the, the revolution would, would end before it would you know, bring down the, the colony. That was the, the colonizers' claims and hopes. Right. It then ends up being sort of the mother, right? Motherhood and, and le- making sure that proper motherhood was recultivated within um, within these women. That was sort of what the project of re-education was around and teaching the women to be virtuous and, and therefore rekindling um, proper sort of efforts around the young people that were kind of getting off the trail and joining Mau So that was sort of what was used to you know, the, the, the fact that training women who are going to then become mothers to be rightful and virtuous mothers so that their children wouldn't be wrongfully engaged in, in, in the Mau Mau rebellion efforts. And I mean, did it work, right? Like, did the logic that these colonizers have, did it create the effects that it intended? Like, what happened after all of these, after this village, villagization process and education? You know, there's some really great literature. I don't know if you're familiar with Ngogi Wathiongo, but he writes um, the uh, famous text is uh, Decolonizing the Mind. He grew up, he was a child uh, during Mau Mau. He grew up in one of these villages when it was surrounded by barbed wire fence. And he uh, describes being like beaten by his teachers for speaking Kikuyu because many of the colonizers didn't speak Kikuyu, that they feared what was being said and, and that they were trying to tamp down on that in the schools, right? That they could, that as Krishna was alluding to, that a revolution could happen at any age, right? Anyone could be a threat. And so there is this pervasive fear that was produced and an intense, I would say, at least in, in Ngogi's account, a, a, a hatred of what was being done to them. They, they saw it as cultural genocide. I mean, I can't speak obviously for people, but there are a searing accounts of what this represented. And, and I, I think you're starting to see and it, it began, I think, with histories of the hanged and imperial gulag. These are some um, recent reconstructionist historiographies that are built a lot on testimonials of uh, Gikuyu who were detained, uh, who were tortured, um, who, who knew family and friends who were killed uh, by the British. That there has been uh, a real, finally, consideration by the British government of the horrors that were wrought during this time. And in fact, there has been uh, reparations that have been paid. So, so, you know, in terms of its efficacy, I, you know, <laughs> it's, it, how can you really account for that with the, the, yeah. the, yeah, the psychic toll? So when it comes to these different discourses in genes and Mau Mau, like how, how do you see them today in organizations like Bridge International? What's the connection in your mind? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, so one of the things that we highlight in, we see these discourses as re-articulated, right? So one of the things that we highlight in, in Bridge is that there's um, the, the figure of the mother ends up being important within the bridges within the bridge sort of intervention as well, right? And it's based on 
certain kinds of racial tropes like the the sort of African matriarch, right, that are then rearticulated. And so we see the civilizing thesis sort of continuing in those ways, right? So motherhood is valorized, but from Victorian domesticity, we see the sort of valorization of an entrepreneurial motherhood um, within within bridge discourses. So that's sort of one of the ways. And then the other thing that you kind of mentioned earlier that I want to kind of pick back up one of one of the things that we were highlighting, it, it's sort of these ideas of community engagement, right? That was a part of sort of bottom up efforts. Um, we see sort of participatory efforts within development, you know, across the development sector. Um, within Bridge, we see that through um, ethnographic, using ethnographic accounts, representing women, women and girls' voices. So these sort of articulations of representation and inclusivity as part of the development project um, are still re, you know, using are still having the same effects, uh, and yeah. So I mean, that's sort of one way that we we see the continuity. Just to underline that, I think there's a, a sense, oftentimes there's like amnesia, right? A historical amnesia in a lot of education reform discourses, and there's this idea then that like in the turn of the girl, that it's like finally we're we're talking about. The, who really matters in development, and part of what we're we're looking at is to say, wait a second, the vault, the the perceived vulnerable subject that has been at the heart of colonial interventions from the beginning. It's always been a sort of moralizing justification to say it's in fact uh, the woman in the turn of the twentieth century and the girl today who is positioned as the most precarious subject and therefore requiring this beneficent intervention. And it's the, that very and the techniques used to do that, the techniques of representation that seek to secure the authenticity of their voice, that you can see that going back 100 years. It's not quite the same, but there are, as we explore and as Krishna was just saying, like these tropes that continue to, to circulate and recirculate, even as some of the, the methods uh, may, may shift yeah. The other thing that we see um, and, and we highlight in this paper is sort of and, and that both of us kind of engage in our own sort of separate projects is this attention to shifting the interiority and that being the thing that needs to be fixed. Right. So the in order to become more civilized, you need the right kinds of emotional sensibilities that that are cultivated in you. And we actually see an uptake of, of those kinds of things within development right through things like life skills and non-cognitive skills that both of us in our in our separate projects kind of engage with m- more. But that was something that we wanted to highlight in this paper too, right? So the civilizing, there are certain kinds of emotions that are the right kinds of emotions that a, a subject and a female subject particularly needs to embody. And so it's Victorian domesticity during during genes. Um, and, and today it's it's more of a sort of a assertive disposition or a particular kind of confidence or sort of an enterprising subject position that is um, the right kind of femininity, right? But all of that is, is, is sort of based on shifting the internal disposition, the affective orientation, the behaviors, the embodied um, what you're what you're sort of presenting as a female subject and then embodying and what that how that radiates outward. And that sort of was the thing that we wanted to wanted to look at in historicize specifically. And I, I want to just circle back to what everything that Krishna was saying, you can also link to what we had discussed at the very beginning of the conversation as a sort of neo-Lamarckian thesis of evolution. Of course, we look at, at Lamarck today and say, what was that about? And kind of throw up our hands and say, that was pseudoscience. 
There's a different developmental justification given today that we discuss briefly in the article that's now framing these sort of justifications for the this this now gendered difference in terms of anticipation and its probabilities. So now it's a correlational logic. It's not about deducting from a Lamarckian thesis of, of uh, that, that has like progress already sort of mapped out, right, along a continuum. It's now to say, well, we can be agnostic about where all this is headed, but we can draw correlations about, well, if a girl goes to school, then that increases her earning power more than twice of boys. If she graduates and gets a job, that correlates with higher gross domestic product. All these correlations come to justify the, the, the usefulness or the need for these interventions. And yet, and this is what we're trying to point out, and yet they, they follow along a very familiar script. Mm-hmm. Just a different way to justify it. I want to kind of add one, one thing that we're not saying in this, right? So on one, we're showing how um, empowerment discourses, empowerment rhetoric today, um, these sort of colonial discourses um, are, are sort of depoliticizing certain things. Like we, we've kind of established that. But we're not suggesting that all governing discourses have a, a uniform effect, right? We, there's, a, there's a vast body of feminist and anthropological literature about development and education that illustrates otherwise. There are unintended effects, errant ways in which girl empowerment rhetoric sort of unfolds, some of which potentially produce certain kinds of political conscience. So I, I don't think that that's what we're highlighting. And, and then we also sort of want to note that within both historical you know, historically and and today, there are slippages, subversions, and refusals, right? So um, to these projects and and to thinking about the sort of idea of empowerment outside of what what we understand of it with attached to a modern development discourse Mm, mm. that's sort of predicated on a particular kind of liberal subjectivity. Yeah, right, right. So Chris Kirchgassler and Karishma Desai, thank you so much for joining Preshed. Really a pleasure to talk today. Thank you all for having us. Thanks so much. Chris Kirchgassler is an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Karishma Desai is an assistant professor at Rutgers Graduate School of Education. Their latest article, Girls in Crisis, was published in the Comparative Education Review. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushi Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and Ing Jung Cho. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.